Um, I'd like them to also understand that you can't be the, for the liberation of Black people unless all Black people are included within that effort. Um, and an understanding that the movements for which we are marching right now were actually started by um, queer Black people. Um, so trying to remember that we have an entire movement that was stemmed out of something, again, that was queer at its root, queer and Black, um, and that Blackness does include queerness. Um, and the sooner we can accept that and the sooner we can deconstruct the ways in which we police and chastise ourselves, which are internalized um, behaviors as a result to um, being colonized, the sooner we can deconstruct that whiteness within ourselves, the sooner we can actually make a viable plan for the liberation of all Black lives. Black people, we have a lot of work to do, and as Vanity points out, a lot of it has to do with unlearning the whiteness that has shaped our prejudiced society. In today's episode, I asked Vanity Reed Dieterville to come on our show to talk to me about her transition in life as well as her work to uplift and fight for the Black members of the LGBTQIA community. I met Vanity way back at the beginning of my journey to build Boss Logs, and it just so happened that she was in the early stages of her transition. So it was only right that I asked her to be the first person on my platform to address the lack of support we've had for brothers, sisters, and non-binary Black people in the LGBTQIA community. All Black Lives Matter. And to prove it to you, I'd like to welcome you to Episode 8, Unlearning the Whiteness with Vanity Reed Dieterville. All right, hello everyone. My name is Walter Gaynor II, and I'd like to welcome you to Boss Locks. We are we are redefining professionalism and proving that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. Now, today I have the honor and privilege of speaking with Vanity Reed Ditterville. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Walter? I'm doing good. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Because I feel like I messed that up a little. Um, Dieterville. You had to Dieterville. Yeah. Just about. Okay. All right. We'll get a better next time as we go on. <laughs> um. <laughs> So for anyone who's not familiar with Vanity, she is a part of Charleston's Gullah Geechee community and advocate activist for policies and support for the Black people of color and LGBTQ communities, and recently became the um, program director for the LGBTQ pro, um, Center in Durham. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. Nice. And also, for those who've been listening since the beginning, she works with the uh, Transformative Teaching Coalition with Drasana McDaniel. So um, she has done a lot of things throughout her life, her journey, and I have a bunch of questions, but to start it all off, um, can you name three things that most people don't know about you? Uh, three things that most people don't know about me. I think that most folks don't know that I'm a hopeless romantic. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like most folks don't know how much I like sushi. And I also feel like folks uh don't really understand the type of energy I experience daily. Mm. So yeah, I'll keep it at those three. Okay. Those are three interesting things. So I like to kind of dive into each of these. So hopeless romantic. What, what, uh, what led you to saying that's like one of the things that most people don't know about you? Because I feel like I am very drawn to more than one person. I, I don't live a monogamous life. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that process of finding where exactly within polyamory, um, my sexuality lies, 
Um, I feel like I come across a lot of genuine spirits and I love easily. And when I do love easily, I end up loving maybe sometimes a little too much than I should. Um, but I just feel like I'm very drawn um, heavily to folks that I am, I have like a natural affinity to. Um, and that may not be the best thing, you know? The best thing for you or for that other person? For me. For, me. for you? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting you think about love and I think that we all have these kind of expectations of what love means and what it looks like. But at the end of the day, you can't really put like a real label on it. Like I feel like our hearts are really drawn to whatever we're drawn to. And sometimes we really can't control that. Sometimes it's just That's not true. the right thing for us, but it's still what we want and what's really important um, to us. Yeah, it's like... You know, I'm in a poly relationship right now, um, but there has been the constraint of distance between us mm. um, and the fact that my partner also has a family to themselves. Um, and so in that process of seeing him, it's just been very interesting um, observing the type of people who approach me um, for intimate or sexual reasons. Um, and you can see, I feel like when you observe a person well enough, you can see their lifestyle from afar. And that may not be anything that you need to align yourself with. However, mm. for whatever reason, you feel very drawn to. Um, and so I find myself coaching myself to not be so nice to folks. Because um, I think I get the rep of being nice. And at times I've heard that I may be too nice. Um, so I'm just trying to refine the energy that I allow to come into my personal space, you know, yeah. um, refine who and what I allow into um, my heart, my temple, um, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting kind of observation of yourself and how you um, give energy and receive energy to yourself, especially right now. I feel like COVID has really exposed a lot. Um, see that with everything from politics to everyday life and relationships. Um, so for you, you're saying that kind of this period of time where we kind of have the social distance is really kind of, I guess, has it kind of shown you a different side of your relationship or um, I guess can you kind of dive into that a little bit? I think the social distancing has amplified the strains that were already there. Mm. Um, and so it's required constant communication for uh, the both of us to keep up on the same page as to what each other is going through in their life. Um, but that's really the only way you can get through these things is to literally just talk it out, right? Um, Very true. So yeah, I think that's the that's what this social distancing has done. It's only amplified things that were already um, going to be a challenge because it was long distance. Mm -hmm. I feel you. Well, best of wishes with that. I, I know um, this is definitely a trying time, but yeah, I definitely have to um, echo communication is very key. I'm in a relationship when we're living together and it's just, I feel as though we've been very good at communicating with each other since like we started off long distance, but even with that, just being in the same room with your partner just all day, every day, you yeah. end up getting on each other's nerves. So yeah, communication is definitely key. <laughs> good luck to all the 
couples and single people out there because this is definitely some rough times. Good luck. <laughs> Don't know how you did it, but you did it. So yay. Right. Right. Yay. <laughs> um, sushi. Do you have any? You see my eyes. So right? I was thinking about the second thing. Oh yeah, this is just a random. <laughs> I just jumped right into that. So I was just curious why you brought up sushi as like the one thing. Is it? Are you um like new to the sushi world? No, I'm not new to it, but I have found that I really enjoy going to sushi, going to eat sushi, even sometimes by myself. Um, it's like very enjoyable because um, I don't get classic rolls. I get like nigiri, little nuggets of fish and rice and um, really different to observe from sushi bar to sushi bar, how it's prepared how the texture, the taste, the whatever. I just really find it an enjoyable experience. Um, and I could do it by myself if it came to it, but I often do it um, with someone. It's been a while because of considering, but mm -hmm. um, it's just something I think of when I think of peace. <laughs> right. I've, uh, that's interesting. I was just going to say, oh yeah, I, I like, I like how it tastes, but <laughs> you went deep into it. I also realized that recently. Yeah, I, I'm deep for no reason. You know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to do a whole new like series about sushi and unraveling and how each layer shows it. I don't know. We'll have to work on that. That's going to be a new project. That could let me know. Yeah. When you do it. All right. Um, what is, so I guess another thing um, to really highlight that like you're born and raised in Charleston and I'm from Charleston as well, but I've been removed for a while. I still touch back down every now and then, but now when I go back, I start to feel like a tourist to be honest. So mm. what is one of your go-to sushi places in Charleston the next time I visit? Uh, one of my go-tos uh, used to be Tasty Thai on King Street, but now there's only a Mount Pleasant location because they had to close. Um, and um, I think both Fuji, which is either Mount Pleasant or downtown. I've heard of Fuji, actually. Prefer the downtown location. Um, or Zen Asian Fusion, um, which is in West Ashley. But I think I like okay. Fuji the best. Oh, yeah. Oh, and there's the spot that's really really for um, group get-togethers or dates or whatever. Um, it's called Locals Sushi, and they have live performances sometimes, and you can see the sushi bar, and it's, yeah. So Locals, Fuji, probably be my top two. Okay, Locals and Fuji. Actually, mm -hmm. I remember going to... I thought, so when you said Fuji's, I was thinking, oh yeah, that's the one. But then when you said Zen Fusion, I realized, oh no, that's actually the one I heard about. I think I went there for someone's graduation party. That's possible, Ooh, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to do a sushi tour too. That'll be part of the series. Do um, it. Do a sushi tour throughout Charleston <laughs> and talk about unraveling the mysteries of sushi and society. Um, that actually <laughs> would be well-received. If yeah. you joke about it, it'd be well-received. Oh, sure. We're going to plan it after this call. We're not going to speak anymore about it. I don't want anyone else to <laughs> take it first, but. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Um, all right. So with number three, which is kind of an interesting one for, um, you said that most people don't know about you, is the type of energy you receive on just everyday basis. 
Uh, can you mm -hmm. dive a little bit more into that? Um, so I kind of alluded to it earlier when I was talking about my life, my love life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one aspect of it, but just the, the people that are drawn to you for whatever reason. Um, I do speak a lot and it happens to be in public or public forum, um, whether on panels virtually or in person, um, whether within the community. Um, I think I have created my name for one of the young um, vocal activists of the city. And um, in that process, people are drawn to you, not only for the things you fight for, um, but for the story that you have and the way you communicate that with society. Um, I'm learning that the way I speak about things that I experience is what really drew people to continually wanting to hear me speak about whatever. Um, and although it may seem small to me, it has helped provide some of my bread and butter, like speaking at these engagements and, and uh, sharing my story and, and speaking truth to power in, in uh, many different systems. But that's one aspect of it. My romantic life is one aspect of it. Um, I've been approached by probably um, every gender and every sexuality. And so um, this has happened before I even really characterized myself as pansexual. Um, and I don't know, it, it's just something's reflective about the way and the timing that folks cross paths with you and where you are in your personal journey. Um, I always think about what my transition um, personally is indicative of depending on a person that is attracted to me and the context to which they are attracted to me. Um, so it's just like a constant reflection of where you are in life, in my opinion. Hmm. You know, when I was actually looking into like your background and everything, you really do speak on a lot of different topics and subjects and it all comes to a place of, I feel like empowerment. So I just hear what you're saying. We say the energy you receive, I guess, is different depending on what you're speaking on and um, mm -hmm. it's the context of the situation people are approaching you as well. And one thing I didn't mention at the beginning is that you're someone who has transitioned from being um, born a man into becoming a woman. That's and right. I know that plays a large factor as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess before I touch really on that, I think one thing that's interesting is that you are using your experiences, your authentic, authentic experiences to bring to a lot of large issues and topics that people don't want to face to um, front and center of attention and in the spotlight. Right. Um, what has given you the confidence or what gets you feeling comfortable to share your experiences and these stories and really just making people pay attention? Uh, what um, gets you ready? What is it? Um, I think it's the fact that um, there have been a lot of things that I have gone through that have been traumatic, but very public. Um, and so I kind of was thrust into the movement of speaking against uh, the systems that created those problems. Um, for instance, I was struck by a car a few years ago 
Um, and it left me pretty bad off. Um, and the reason I was struck is because there was supposed to have already been a bicycle pedestrian lane across a bridge, but that a driver um, ignorantly swerved into a lane while I was riding my bike. Um, and so that spoke to the issue of the long-awaited bike pedestrian lane over a specific bridge that I was crossing. And from then, I felt like I was thrust into movements of just speaking against um, these networks that have helped contribute to a downfall that I have in my life. And yeah, mm -hmm. I do take responsibility for um, what I've contributed to, but I also have to acknowledge the circumstances around me that fostered for that downfall to happen in the first place. Um, from then, I became pretty vocal on many other things. Um, LGBTQ homelessness, um, the issues that come with being on the street, um, substance abuse, um, political protection, uh, community safety and re redevelopment. There's just so many things that I saw once I started speaking up on one thing that intersected with that. And so it was just like, wow, we really don't live single issue lives, right? So I think that allows me to be able to talk about my transition a little bit more personally. Um, I think you, one always has to identify when they have privilege despite being disparaged. And so the fact that I was able to finish school um, and obtain a degree really sets a standard and a precedent for the of what a trans woman and specifically a black trans woman is. Um, but we are seeing like a resurgence of positive representation of um, black uh, women of trans experience. And I think that is critical to really shift in the paradigm and understanding um, gender and sexuality also. Um, so, you know, some of the things that I've done have already been lost into oral histories and so I'm just like okay well I've already started using my life as an example so let me continue mm -hmm. that's pretty powerful and also I'd just like to say you know thank you for doing what you do um I don't know if you know this but I know that your voice carries a lot of weight and um I think that you probably help people that you've never met probably won't ever meet but just knowing that there's someone like you out here speaking for the rights and justice. Um, it just does something different when you have that representation and you are that representation for a lot of people. And it's pretty- Yeah, okay, forgive me. I'm like moving my camera all around because lighting is all weird. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, as much, we need as much positive res representation as we can possibly get because we've been pummeled with negative uh, tropes of what trans existence is supposed to mean for the longest time. So mm -hmm. yeah, the time is now. Many revolutions happening amongst us. Great time That's to so be alive. Yes, yeah, so I love what you said about the single, this kind of single issue, I guess maybe perspective that we often face and have. Like, I think we, like, just speaking on the Black experience and for Black rights, I know back in the day that a lot of Black women were kind of left out of the conversation um, because I think it was felt that we needed to just focus on black lives as a whole, but really just turn right. it into certain black lives, getting the rights right. pushed forward. 
And recently, with all the protests, one thing I thought was really interesting is as people are painting Black Lives Matter on the streets, you also see people painting all Black Lives Matter here and there. And that, I think, was really powerful for representation. But also, I just started to think about um, when it comes to like the LGBTQ community, um, it's, well, for one, each letter that name represents a different culture, but also in there, I think that we don't always put a lot of attention on the Black uh, people of that community because for those members of people like you, it's not a single issue. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel as though the Black community as a whole, we've just kind of kind of taken an L with not really supporting and being there to represent everyone's rights. And I think that is due to a lot of unlearning I, that I think needs to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I heard a um, a Black trans documentarian by the name of Aaron Lang make a statement recently. Um, Aaron Lang actually has been, Anne Hathaway has allowed Aaron Lang to take over her Instagram for the past week to really highlight the experience and the perspective of a Black trans woman. And so there's been many conversations that have stemmed out of what Erin Lang has documented during her work. Um, And one of the things that I heard her say recently is that Black people are so obsessed with competing to be Black that if you embody or illustrate anything else that could minutely deviate from what it means to succeed at being Black, you are then considered an eternal threat. Um, And then these biases get internalized and then the violence against those folks who are deviant becomes normalized within our communities. And so we have an issue within ourselves as communities of color um, and really accepting um, who our brothers and sisters and siblings are. Um, And like any community or any subset, the white man will also um, almost always uh, elevate, if you will, to the upper crust, the upper echelon of that community. Um, So we have racism internalized and implicit um, within the queer community. And then you have a queer population of color that is already predisposed to violences from outside and within their own community. Um, And so it's interesting. This is why, again, we're seeing highlighting the lived experiences of many queer and trans people because they have for the longest time been like discarded. Mm. I love how you put that. And that is so true. And I think in so many different forms as well, like that this, it's like this very podcast is all about natural hair and professionalism. And of course we want to white people and other people in power realize that we need to be respected and our hair being different is really no concern or none of your business as well. But also, I want to speak to people of the Black community who look down on people with natural hair um, because there oh, is this interesting um, inner competitiveness. You just yeah. opened a can of worms with that one. Go ahead, speak on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that um, kind of like you said, I feel like a lot of people have worked really hard to um, get Black people to a higher level and really raise the bar for racial equity. And I think that sometimes when you are kind of that one person 
who's pushing for the rights for so off so long, you kind of worry about your idea of your mission being um, um, kind of diverted and diluted by mm -hmm. other things as well. And kind of like what you're saying before, where single issues, it's, I feel like that's kind of like an old way of going about it. I think we live in such a time where there's so much diversity, um, not just between race, but between our own inner cultures um, all over the world that single issues, just focusing on a single issue is really um, doing it injustice. And when it comes to natural hair, um, your culture, your preferences, um, basically however you define yourself and identify yourself, I think that we all needs the appropriate attention, the separate attention, and we can't just loop everything into one or have a group of people take a back seat any longer. Yeah. Um, I think success within our community, again, has been so intrinsically tied up in whiteness to the point where um, we have chastised and vilified our own um, because we see um, uniqueness and, and, um, and free expression is unruly um, and as a force against success, prosperity, um, or achieving the pursuit of happiness. So I think once we continue, and, and it's an ongoing process to unlearn the whiteness in our ways, um, because we still have many internalized behaviors that um, a lot of folks don't recognize as being attached to some forms of trauma um, in former generations. But if we keep unlearning that, we can continue to be ourselves and still be uh, the same successful individuals we dream for ourselves to be. I love that. And I like that phrase, unlearn the whiteness. Because I think yeah, that's it's a very a lot appropriate. Of unlearning going on, man. Yes. And especially I... Sometimes I feel like I'm like a Charleston hater, but I, I'm really glad I grew up in Charleston, but also I feel as though, in my perspective, Charleston is a very traditional sense of how things should be mm -hmm. um, from all walks of life. I know my mom, she um, was blessed to have a store downtown Charleston on Broad Street, and she had a gallery mm -hmm. that gave people a space for their art that wasn't accepted in any other art gallery because it wasn't paintings of the marsh or the Cooper River Bridge mm -hmm. or paintings, mm -hmm. the, the true expressions of what was going on within them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring that up, art, because I read something interesting that not too long ago, you actually put on a play. And oh, that... that <laughs> yeah, but that play, I feel like, could probably be shown probably every year for at least the next 10 years because that topic really takes the untraditional, well, quote-unquote, untraditional lifestyle and brings it right to people's uh, front and center in Charleston, a place where it's like, this is the way, keep doing it this way. Um, so can you speak a little bit on... Um, well, first off, the the title that you chose for the play and what it felt mm -hmm. like to really put that on for Charleston. Um, so this play was actually a good while ago. Um, this was actually very shortly after my first time meeting you. Um, and it was entitled Sugar and the Grits. 
um, I drew on a play of words. Um, I chose to highlight grits because it is a staple in Charleston. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I chose to say sugar in the grits because I wanted to mirror a black trans, openly trans uh, affirming and uh, trans woman um, in the South, in the low country South, and how the placement of her lived experience and her life in this setting is almost like haphazardly putting sugar in the grits. Um, and so I tried to draw the parallel um, with the illustrations, of course, of what it meant to be me and what it took to finally express myself as me. Um, and a lot of the downfalls that I chose to highlight um, were because of thought of me being in the wrong place at wrong time without the right support or whatever. Um, so that was, it was a very rough draft, but it was successful. Um, I had a cast of about 10 people. Um, and uh, actually, Drisana, I remember one of our first encounters also, Drisana like left after viewing um, in tears. And I didn't really find out until afterward, but um, it's a it's a project of mine. I never like expanded on it after that first time or anything, but it was something that I feel like I needed personally to release all that was inside me about what was going on with me at the time, what had led up to me being at that point, um, where I saw my life going. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice. Hmm. So what, um, how was it? So you mentioned like your song, she left the tears and she, <laughs> she probably doesn't want us to like dive into her own story, but how was the play received? Uh, it was received very well, but one thing I didn't anticipate after completing that huge project, um, was that it made me very vulnerable to many people. Um, and I know I did have quite a few vulnerable experiences, but I didn't really think of myself as what negatively connotated vulnerable means, um, like weak or timid or frail or anything. And so I felt like because I was able to like beautifully expose many parts of myself, many intricacies of myself, um, it left me naked in front of many. Um, and so while the public received it very well, I dealt with some more things internalized immediately after that for the next good while. Um, but that did force me to like start addressing some of the issues that I highlighted in the first place. Um, but yeah, it was just something I never really considered was how I was going to feel after everyone knew what they knew um but after they knew what they knew um i think my credibility my respect my name i think many things had more reach and uh that was the base for a lot of growing that i had to do oh congratulations i know that was a while ago but that's pretty incredible one to put on a play i mean to create it 
put it on and have it have the impact that it did. I think that's pretty amazing. So yeah, congratulations on that. And also, I just know that when I know from personal experience, when you start to really live out your authentic self and put it out there, it's it's kind of this weird feeling where it's like, oh, this is it's almost like you can't go back anymore. Like, oh, you've shown the world this is you and you just have mm -hmm. to keep going into this weird, uncomfortable setting of just being your true self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, to kind of speak on the new opportunities that came after that, like I saw that you were, I think it was CNN, like on this panel or speaking about like our current um, presidential, camp well, it was like early in the year, I think. So the, whoever the current like presidential candidates were at that time, um, and really like critiquing and sharing your thoughts on who's who and why. Basically. Yeah, um, that opportunity was like in the works for a while, unbeknownst to me. Um, it literally fell into my lap um, from a colleague, um, uh, another Black uh, woman who is an activist in Charleston with roots that lie there, but also has lived experience in the Northeast. And so she was working, her name is Tamika Gadsden. And at the time she was working for Charleston Act. Well, she is curating for Charleston Activist Network. But at the time she was working as a regional field director for um, an organization based in Atlanta, I believe called Black Voters Matter. <coughs> and um, Black Voters Matter was contacted by producers at CNN asking for a list of six uh, Black South Carolina Democrats since the South Carolina um, primary was approaching and uh, they wanted to know what the folks were thinking across the board when it came to the candidates that were in the race at that point, January, and then again in February. Um, so I received the call, we went through some pre-screening questions and I was selected as one of the six people um, and then we went up and filmed um, at the Hudson Yard Studios in Manhattan um, for CNN's New Day with uh, Allison Camerota. And um, surprisingly, I wasn't nervous for whatever reason, being on an internationally syndicated network, but it went really smoothly. Um, and I think I was able to fairly assess who I wanted to support on an even playing field. Um, you know, when you get to deal with those kinds of networks, they assume a lot of folks are just going to automatically um, absolve into the supporting base for a candidate just because of the pop culture things that they hear them saying or um, whatever else. And so it was good to show, I believe I was the youngest person on the panel. Um, with my brother, Benny, who is a local rapper and activist in Charleston. Um, what we really thought as the younger generation of these candidates and what are the things that are prevalent to our community now. Um, so we did that. Uh, they called us after we finished filming and said that they wanted us back for a second segment. Um, they also stressed that they didn't really do second segments with panels before. Um, and then we went back less than a month later. Um, and it was amazing. Um, being in New York, um, staying with a friend in Queens the second time, staying in Manhattan uh, first time, 
and just getting around to see my folk in Brooklyn and Harlem. Um, and it was right before all of the pandemic things really took an onset. And so I miss New York dearly and I know that they have been hit hard by this, but yeah, it was a great time, a great experience. That is really cool. I had no idea it was in New York either. I thought they um, kind of came down to Charleston and collected some people, but they kind of reached far yeah, and wide to bring know, the best of the best. Folks wondered why we didn't just go to the Atlanta studios, but for whatever reason, they brought us up to the Manhattan studios. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So um, I want to get into that, but you mentioned um, not being nervous when you went on at first. And I, um, what what type of things were you doing to prep to go on a go on CNN's like live segment to kind of speak uh, about our candidates? Benny and I were having a conversation since early that morning and it continued into the green room when we were all getting like hair and makeup done. Um, and then that conversation continued literally on to set. Um, so we would already been talking about some of the things that we wanted emphasize and some of those things that we wanted to make a note to illustrate and and highlight did get edited out because you really don't have control on what they edit in and what they edit out um and so that's where the production and the spin of all these networks comes into play um so we were really just talking about the things that we were going to repeat that we found adamant to stress um and that literally continued in the car because it was a very fast-paced movement day I had already shattered my phone the night before. Um, So I couldn't use my phone for anything, any preparation notes, any anything. Um, So I was almost having like a freak out, mini panic attack. But speaking with Benny and speaking with Mika and the other panelists um, for the good while leading up to the panel, I think helped uh, ground the conversation a little bit more so that there wasn't so much anxiety associated with it. The second time, Um, that we went up there, I was more nervous because I didn't stay um, in the city. I stayed in Queens with my friend. Um, And I got uh, an Uber an hour before um, I was supposed to be there and didn't know that I was going to use most of that hour to get there. So I was literally rushing down to the minute. The producer downstairs and like, let's get her right in the hair and makeup. It was just so quick, so quick. Um, But... Uh, I think that really just talking about what it, with the folks who talk about these things often in a casual setting leading up to essentially what they consider a performance um, helps to ground it and helps to make it a little bit more personable. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Another amazing experience. Um, how do you feel about where we are politically now compared to just back when you were on CNN speaking about the political climate? Can you say that one more time? Yeah. How do you feel about where we are now politically compared to at the beginning of the year when you were speaking on CNN? Um, I think things are amplified for the worst. Um, I do feel like we have our... Congress is experiencing lots of gridlock, but I do think that we have our young fighters within the freshman class of Congress um, and within some of the seniority in Congress. Um, President, I believe, has, I won't discount him completely because he has come through on some aid, but his response time 
and the willingness to approve that aid, I think is largely questionable. Um, and the heightened violence, whether overt or covert, um, to these communities, in addition to an ongoing global pandemic, um, I think making this a very cancerous political time. Um, I did not support Joe Biden, and I stated on CNN that I felt like he has um, significant rapport with the Black community, specifically because of his tenure with um, President Obama and the failure of our people to really separate Biden and Obama um, because of how well we perceived that administration or whatever. Um, so there are just things that have taken a turn for the worse in my eye um, because now we're seeing numbers spike. And so this public health issue is also a political issue as we're seeing with ordinances to require mask wearing in public and uh, there's just been so much that's happened, you know, right? Like I got literally put out of school. We School was shut down um, the week before, the week of, and the week after spring break. And then after that, we were told not to come back past the year. So graduation, everything, lots of life was completely flipped upside down um, from March up until now. And um, I don't necessarily, I, I can't confidently say that we're yet getting better. I can't say that. Yeah, I know in Georgia, it's it's kind of interesting because um, really where you are does kind of matter on how the progression is and who the kind of the like the leaders are in making the laws. Because I know now it seems as though people are tar starting to take it seriously again um, to yeah. a degree, still, still to a degree, but. Um, everything was being opened up. People were coming into like bars and restaurants and all this stuff. And now like just this past week, it seems like everything's like, oh, no, just kidding. We got to go back. It's it's not over yet because um, the spikes have been crazy. Um, yeah, they have. Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. And also I want to congratulate you on being able to finish school uh, graduating during this global pandemic. I think, I feel like that's a first for anyone i could be wrong but i i don't know it may um, only happened like a number of times to this scale if it has um yeah this has been quite the interesting time for the class of 2020 so thank you mm -hmm. what's something that you would um because for a lot of people it wasn't even just like the class of 2020 there's a lot of other people who are like juniors and sophomores still having to finish out school and get ready to go back to school. Um, like I know my siblings at Clark and it's just because there's no way of knowing what's going to happen. It's hard to make certain decisions school-wise, mm -hmm. like how like you're going to come to campus if you are, um, what class is going to look like, what's something that you would like to share with people who are still in school? Um, um, in this pandemic? I can only say be faithful, but you're really going to have to take your education and the experience of your education into your own hands at this point, however that may look. And we know that people being away from the campus are um, many times stripped of the resources that are made available to a lot of the students um, and like technology and library resources and all that stuff, right? Um, let's say literally stay faithful. Um, keeping each other encouraged, 
um, stay very vigilant um, on your board of trustees um, and the strategic planning of the institution. Um, I think I wasn't as um, attentive to the strategic planning happening in the last couple months of the institution, but that was kind of just because I had senioritis and was over anything that had to do with the institution, right. ready to move into the workforce. And so for those who are still matriculating through, I would say definitely be involved with the boards um, and the commissions that are charged with um, the direction of the institution, um, because you are paying for your education and paying for those folks to work for your collective good. So stay involved with what's happening with your institution um, and just try to make the best decision available. Um, there are a lot of resources being available now, made available, but there are still a lot of struggles that are gonna be persistent for a good little while for ongoing college students. So yeah, and, and I attended school in that AUC at one point. You know, I went to Morehouse for my first year and a half of school way before I decided to transition. Um, and I see how HBCUs react administratively to some things. So it's important for the students to like be on their necks about stuff um, and make sure that they aren't being performative, which by the way, I heard that TI is teaching a course at Clark Atlanta now. Just really? Like He's teaching a business of trap music, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm about to enroll real quick. I could go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Professor T.I., sir. Professor oh, wow. That's crazy. Harris. He's going to be a Professor a Tip Harris. Um, but he's really? going to be like an interesting um, professor in the room with this doctor. Wow. That's interesting. I really like to um, see people you know, with the platform and influence and resources give back in different ways. Like that's a very interesting um, choice um, to kind of go back to school, but as a teacher, because I think that brings a lot of attention and probably helps to, well, uh, hopefully kind of help students um, experience education that's not traditional. Um, and that's very big on me. I grew up with alternative um, learning in a sense. I went to Montessori school and I was homeschooled for a bit and also did dual credit, which really helped out my whole college path. But um, I, I think that's really exciting and that's going to provide something new that's needed to the whole educational system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking of education, educational journey. So you started out uh, going to Morehouse, uh, but then ended up going back to college. College of Charleston? That's right. Gotcha. What um what was the reasoning for that? Um, so I lost some funding that I originally had, but also um I got caught up in a bit of the Atlanta street life, um, searching for who I was or running away from the fact that I was gonna have to admit to everyone in my life who I knew I was. Um, and so I came back home to try to recalibrate my life, which took a few years. Um, I struggled with some things until I addressed them. Um, and then the most feasible option for me was to return to the College of Charleston and just finish the degree there. Um, however, I have made lasting relationships 
from my time at Morehouse, but some folks that I still communicate and look out for me today. Um, and so once you are at Morehouse, you never really are disconnected um, mm -hmm. from those folks. Uh, it's just one of those institutions, but yeah. Very interesting time. I'm not the same person. I finished school as I was the first the person who started school. Um, there's been quite the personal evolution, physical also. And it's been for the better. But yeah, those that was two separate cadences in my life. Wow. I didn't realize that. I think college really is, I think part of what I would say the benefits of going to college is kind of is a great way to begin kind of finding your true self and discovering and um it's it really is an interesting experience and that's just for an average day college student but for you it's a complete maybe shift and maybe not shift but really finally coming to terms with who you truly were um that's really interesting did you so you say you were struggling with um kind of who you are did that begin in college or no, um, it only came to the forefront around the time that I was in college. Um, I knew that I was going to live as a woman from a very young age, but I wasn't really allowed to act on that as a dependent, as someone living under someone else's roof. Um, parents and some grandparents were very disapproving. Um, West Indian and a Christian background. Um, I'm no longer religious. But those kinds of uh, confines with my upbringing um, forced me to have to literally seek a school away from home so that I could start to try to figure out and address, express myself as I knew I was already. Um, so when I allowed myself to express myself freely and I came um, to, back, to grips with dealing with that expression and letting my parents know this is what it is, um, that's when some of the issues began around that time, around the time that I first enrolled and the time that I dropped out. Um, and then I had already established who I was by the time I returned to school. Hmm. I think that's really beautiful that you were able to come to your true self in the city where you didn't feel like your true self. Um, and I like what you were saying about you had to really kind of leave your environment because I'm very big on like, I think environments really, I mean, environments, of course, have an impact of who you are and your walk of life. And I really feel strongly that a lot of people need to get out of their own environment, just not even just to like leave whatever life you're living, but just to experience something new. So, um, oh, yeah, you've got to yeah. leave something to grow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so I know that was probably definitely a rough transition, but it's really cool that you left and still came back, but stronger and true to yourself. That's pretty incredible. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to our show. I really appreciate your support and I'm excited to continue to grow with you. Now, last week I mentioned that I'm working on something new and that I would announce it in a couple of weeks, but honestly, I'm too excited to wait for the announcement. I have created the first Facebook group for black professionals with natural hair. It's a safe place for black people to come together to support each other's personal, professional, and natural hair journey. It's also going to be a place to find resources and dive deeper into topics discussed on this show. Now, 
I'm only letting in a select number of people at the beginning and I want you guys to be the first to hear about it. So, if you're interested in learning more, please reach out to me by going to bosslocks.org contact and use the form to request more information. That is bosslocks, B-O-S-S-L-O-C-K-S dot org slash contact to learn more. Thank you very much and now back to our show. Yeah. And um, was your you so you graduated the degree in political science? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Was that the same degree at or same thing you were studying at Morehouse? Yeah, I always pursued a political science degree. Um, when I was at Morehouse, I was actually a political science Spanish double major. Oh, um, and I had because of my high school um, and their foreign language requirements, I had placed high in the foreign language placement test. And so the department chair essentially coerced me into making it my major because uh, she really um, enjoyed folks that could second major. So I did that for the time that I was there. Um, but when I returned home, um, I didn't really have anyone to speak it with or to challenge myself with continuing to use it. Um, and so I just continued the political science degree, but it's always been poli-sci at the base. Okay, cool. So, um, and I guess that also, that's really cool. It makes sense why you were one of the people who spoke with CNN to talk about the political climate. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it makes a little sense. <laughs> that's interesting. So what exactly, um, what type of things do you learn about as a political science major? Um, so many things. And there are so many tracks within that major. I think folks often get distracted by the fact that there are many political science students who say that they want to be judges or attorneys. And so while that is one aspect in the field of political science, um, there's also local government. Um, there is nonprofit management. There is constitutional philosophy aspects of um, political science. Um, and then there are the international relations aspects of political science also. Um, and so I was more so interested on the, the policy aspect of political science, like the actual law um, aspect of it and, and um, the international relations, um, so to speak. And so some of the things that I learned was about our connectivity and the ways in which our consumption um, has social implications that are negative for developing countries um, in continents like Africa or Asia, right? Um, like the, the clothes that we order and purchase from fast fashion corporations, um, the smartphones, tablets, and electric cars that rely on lithium ion um, power. Uh, and those lithium ion batteries are composed of cobalt um, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo which supplies, I believe, over 60% of the world's cobalt. Um, and so recognizing that many things that we do, whether it be for clean energy or efficiency, um, still has negative con uh, consequences on developing nations. The is exponentially driven down and overseas, which is why we are able to get commodities as cheap as we are. Um, and the argument is why don't we make goods in America? Well, we could, but prices would dramatically increase because of the privatized costs in America. 
and the resources not really being native to this land. Um, so our consumption, what that means for the planet, what that means for the international political economy, um, globalization, influences of um, globalization, both from the corporate standpoint and from the indigenous standpoint, um, how things and areas are globalized and cultures shift and language travels and corporations colonize, essentially. Um, you learn about the philosophy aspect, the early um, philosophers who established what political philosophy was and the, the form of debate, the Aristotles, the Socrates, um, the Thucydides. Um, you learn about, uh, what else is it that you learn about? And then you learn about public policy, which is basically the policy making process which is what I wanted to focus on, um, the process in which laws are made from a local to a, a national level um, and how you can get involved in that policymaking process and many different intervention points. You don't have to necessarily be tied to the state as a politician, but you can be a concerned advocate doing grassroots organizing that can still also lobby for um, some kind of change, some kind of significant social change. So learning those many access points to the policymaking process and learning how to comprehend policy and understand why policy changes and all of those things, because we have laws that control our lives heavily that don't always protect us. And as we're seeing, this administration has tried to strip the laws and protections of many at-risk and already targeted communities. Um, so it's, you know, I understand the laws, but those are, that's like a snapshot of everything you could learn in the political science major. It's very dense. Yes, it is. Wow. That, that, that covers a lot. And some of those things I would have thought were specific to having a law degree or a business degree, or even like sociology as well. I guess it, it really is a uh, precursor for, um, for some of those other things, but yeah, like thought and political theory serves the base for many disciplines. Okay. I want to get into laws, like making laws and how to get involved, but you touched on something that uh, made me think of the movie Uncut Gems. Um, did you see that movie? I don't think I have. So it was um, Adam Sandler's most recent movie. It's not at all a comedy. And um, it's about this man. Adam Sandler plays a man who's a jeweler um, in New York. And okay. he kind of quote unquote discovered this gem that I think it came from like some mines in Nigeria. And this whole movie takes place over this gem and basically how if how much money you can make from it and all that stuff. It's an interesting movie, but um, Kevin Garnett plays um, himself really in the movie. And at one point he asks him, how much did you pay for this? Because Adam Sandler is expecting to get like millions of dollars from this gem selling it at this big auction. And he said like, maybe like, uh, 10,000 or 100,000 or some like small number like that. And he's like, that's how much you paid the people in Africa to get this gem, to ritualize and save it. And you're out here trying to flip it for millions of dollars. And I think it touches to kind of what you were saying about how we go into, and when I say we, I mean American and other types of Western um, uh, civilizations go into different communities to kind of strip the resources away without really properly... Um, accommodating mm -hmm. the people who got it mm -hmm. and it's this whole like new form of colonization and i always worry because while well i love 
that we're seeing this new kind of rise on kind of either going back to Africa, traveling to Africa, learning about our culture, our ancestry, but I also see a lot of businesses like the CEO of Twitter, who's also the CEO of Square, um, talking about going down to Africa, spending six months there to just study and learn and all these things. It's like, oh man, it's like, I I love us going back and getting connected with Africa, but also worry about the other worlds who are already there and are continuing to look there to kind of strip and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I know that was a lot. I actually forgot the question I was going to ask, but uh, what are some of the things that you were learning about, like uh, Congo, I think you mentioned, and how either we're going in for resources or other um means that companies are taking from the culture? Well, it's been maybe a year, almost two, since I was in that course. But one of the things that I learned um, was just how much natural resource places like the Congo and many other African nations supply um, and how there is a heavy Asian presence in Africa um, developing and extracting resources um and paying essentially what is pennies back for it and then they convert that and refine it into a material that can be used to manufacture components like lithium ion batteries um but the same thing happens with um like our clothing our clothing that we discard often gets sold and huge bales um to african countries um, we see the same things in um, Asian countries when it comes to labor, um, the way they value their labor is exponentially lower. Um, when it comes to corporations, they're actually kind of predatory on those folks because they are already in a destitute state, so they have no option but to work anyway, and so they are settling for pennies, essentially. Um, so um, that's just a brief overview of some of the things that I've learned. Um, is like the core of the world which provides the natural resources and then the periphery which is those who go to the core countries to extract what they have um and of course we're on the periphery and so um yeah it's just really taught me about what our consumption means despite we're trying to be clean and use clean energy and um, become more efficient in our technology um, and in doing that, which we can say we consider a sustainable um, effort, uh, we are negatively impacting other folks. Um, so it's important to really analyze what sustainability means across many different terms because um, certain pillars of sustainability when it comes to economic and environmental where may really overshadow political and social sustainability and what that means for um, those with less access. Mm. So our our own sustainability could, in fact, harm other uh, cultures, countries, and societies. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. So as we're kind of getting closer to election day, um, both presidential and just across the board, what are some things that you think that we should kind of be paying attention to or look out for our politicians to speak on? Um, 
Well, um, it will be interesting to learn how we continue to handle this pandemic because it is far from over. Um, and the fact that we have begun the second wave of infections despite not really even recovering from the first wave um, of coronavirus cases shows that we allow our freedoms to get in the way of what is right for um, the collective good at times because this is the land of the free and it's um, been decreed that way. So that's my top priority. My next priority will also be the continued accommodations from the government for those who have had their streams of income disrupted um, from those who are like at risk of contracting this virus and also pressuring um, the pandemic response task force of the White House um, to really make sure that they have like upped their ante when it comes to preparing for something like this again. Um, that's all I really care about, that and student loan forgiveness from <laughs> politicians, um, but also our international relations right now, um, because we have a president on um, a most wanted list for Iran. Um, and while the most wanted list for important leaders is not um, uncommon, it is um, speaking to a larger issue um, that our government has allowed to happen. And so I, I have my specific issues that I feel like the protections for trans and queer people um, in the Affordable Care Act, especially um, really beefing up um, the root of the Affordable Care Act from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, legislation like that, just establishing more security for the American people overall is what I wanna hear about. Gotcha. And none of these are going to take a back seat because we can tackle all issues at once. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, now, to go back into um, how laws and policies are made, that's something that's really, it's, so like I started um, Boss Locks, well, basically it came from my own uh, journey to trying to understand how I could go into professional settings and even get job interviews with my locks and keep them the way they are. Um, and I was really worried about how they'd be perceived or if I'd even be admitted to have an interview. Um, and since the beginning, one thing I've always felt very strongly about is getting laws into action that do support um, black people just across the board, but also about natural hair. And so I'm really gracious about this um, or thankful for this, uh, the Crown Act that's going around that really protects natural hair in Virginia um, was, I think, just literally just became one of the first, if not the first Southern state to pass the Crown Act in their own state. Um, but of course, it's not passed federally yet. And I'm just curious about how laws are made, passed, what it all means, because I feel like the politicians make it sound very complex and everything. But um, I'd like to hear from you, basically, what does it take to make a law or make a policy and actually put it into effect? Um, so there are many chambers of uh, the legislative branch of government, which is one of the three main branches. Um, you have the judicial, which consists of the courts from local up to the Supreme Court. Um, and then you have the executive, which is essentially the Trump administration. Um, and the last leg is the legislative, which consists of 
um, the congressional representation of the United States. And um, then each state has their own general assembly or state legislature also, right? So you can have those states' rights and those enumerated powers. Um, a bill is first introduced to the floor and it's read and the sponsors are notified. And then it's typically referred to a committee to establish the constitutionality of the bill, to establish the ways and means, which means like how is it being paid for, the resources it's gonna to take to do this. Um, and many other communities that it could be referred to. Typically it starts in the House um, of Representatives for state legislature or Congress. Um, and then it is um, read multiple times, debated and voted on. Um, and I believe when it, it, it comes to um, majority, um, I think supermajority is only for removing folk. I could be wrong on that. Um, but then it's mailed to the other chamber, the upper chamber, which is considered the Senate. Um, so the House of Representatives is known as the People's House because the reps have a smaller tenure or smaller term, which is like two years or so. And um, they represent less people. Um, so there are more of them in the House, right? Um, the Senate is considered the upper chamber, the upper house, because each senator represents more people and there are fewer of them. Um, so they kind of have a higher stance. Um, and then once the House mails that to the Senate, um, they go through that process also, or they can start on a bill together and it'd be two companion bills that end up going through the same process in each chamber. Um, and then reaching a vote and then being sent to the governor to be signed, or in the case of Congress, being sent to the president to be signed. Um, and so there are many other nuances along the way within that process, but those are the basic functions of how it becomes a bill, how it goes through the process of being um, introduced to the floor formally. Um, sponsors either attach themselves to the bill or wait to discuss, debate, and vote on it. Um, and then the committees that it needs to be referred to and just, uh, you can actually check the legislative timeline of many bills that are in progress. If you're like near or you are familiar with the legislator or you know some legislation is about to come out or something contentious is about to happen. Um, many legislative websites have like a map that shows what process they are in right now. Mm. For the committee, if it's been voted on, if it's been read, and if it's sent to the governor or to the president to be signed. Um, because of the coronavirus, um, there have been a lot of policies that have been put on hold because um, general assemblies have been paused, like South Carolina's, which I believe won't really start again until um, next year. And um, there's a Crown Act, to my understanding, that's supposed to be introduced to South Carolina soon also. So oh, nice. um, as soon as things get underway, the new legislative session, um, that's one of the pieces of legislation I'd keep an eye out for, for South Carolina. Oh, really? And, oh, so you, you're keeping track of the of the Crown Act? Um, well, it's not yet a thing here, um, mm -hmm. but I have heard of it in um, uh, other states. And there are a lot of companion bills from state to state that deal with very like controversial things abortion we're seeing, we're seeing 
um, LGBTQ uh, services for transgender and queer youth. Um, we're seeing uh, um, police reform um, legislation is starting to be released. Um, so Representative Crystal Matthews of District 117 here in the South Carolina General Assembly. Um, I spoke with her because I worked for a campaign um, team for her at one point, and she said that she did have plans on introducing that. Um, to my knowledge, isn't yet, uh, but I could be wrong, or it could be coming very soon. Hmm. Do you feel that because of this pandemic, you are kind of patient with the pace that things are getting passed and addressed? Or do you feel that now more than ever is the time to kind of keep the keep your foot on the pedal and hold people accountable? Um, I think that this was a reset button for many folks, but it is definitely time to hold fire to the power structures. This is the most important time to do that. Gotcha. And because you do a lot with advocacy, um, how exactly do we do that besides just posting on Instagram or tweeting? Like, how do we hold um, politicians and policymakers accountable? Um, all of their contact information is public record because they are public elected officials. And so you can go on forums, Instagram pages, you can go on Facebook, you can go on ACL you or HRC's website, Southern Poverty Law Firm. You can go on many think tanks or NGO websites and find what issues are contentious right now, what issues are prevalent in your state through your own research, personal experience, um, and really get a sense of where that issue is in the legislator by calling your representatives and contacting your representatives by phone, by email, by personal visit, whatever. Um, these folks are required to hear what you have to say as a constituent. Um, and so that's the one way that you can. You'll see on a lot of um, issues that we have when it comes to police reform, uh, the calling for firing and charging of officers that were actually the murderers in these cases. In the process, um, we've had a heightened oversight as to what needs to happen to file a formal complaint, you call the attorney general, you call a police union, you call the um, governor, you call the representatives for that constituency. You, you know, you just get in touch with the representatives legislatively. And then the more you contact them, the more they have to log this as being an issue. And then that public opinion or the prevalence of them hearing about it becomes something that's on the agenda. Wow. So calling actually does work makes a difference and yeah and it's expected. my mom was thinking for a lot of legislators like if you call and you stay in the event or if you have a campaign or a team of folks that are focusing on an issue or an organization and you call like they're required to log it as a specific issue however many times and that sets a precedent as to what should be focused on by the legislator now mm -hmm. and what should so every one person's voice really does make a difference because you have to log every single um, I guess, like, quote-unquote, complaint? Yeah, or but I would inquiry. say reinvent the wheel, do your research, and find out what issues you're passionate about and what efforts are already in place around those issues so that you could join that movement. Interesting. Um, you mentioned one of those issues being services for queer and trans youth. Is that right? Yeah. All right. What exactly are some of these services that are being discussed or um, 
called for? Um, well, actually, there is legislation that was introduced in South Carolina to prevent um, children younger than 18 from receiving any kind of services that dealt with um, trans or non-conforming existence. Um, but that could include as little as uh, counseling services. Um, it could include um, hormonal um, transitions. It could include um, cosmetic surgeries, gender affirmation and reassignment surgeries. Um, it could include name changes and sex changes um, uh, through the courts. Um, it could include uh, drives for uh, transitioning one's closet because a large portion of the transition is um, aesthetically exterior. And um, I think we get caught up on the transition being surgical, but there are many different aspects of uh, transgender and gender affirming uh, related services. Um, and there's legislation to block folks who are younger than 18 from receiving those services. Um, but like I said, some of the services could just literally be counseling about what it is that you're experiencing. Um, and yeah, many other things. Uh, but those right. are some of them. I guess the list goes on and on. Hmm. I think the um, counseling piece is really important. Um, how old were you when you first realized that you were a woman? Uh, I was eight. Eight years old. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And what was, I mean, do you remember kind of what that, I guess, realization was like? Because I can only imagine just being eight years old, just trying to figure out life in general is just interesting. But to have that realization, I think, is very, um, could be um, tough, I guess, depending on your environment. So what was it like for you? Um, so I told a grandmother of mine, um, a late grandmother of mine, and um, I know knew that I had the support of an older woman in my family when I first voiced it. Um, but I was um, clear and understanding that many of the men in my family would have um, a huge problem with it. And so I was made to like keep it a secret until I could support for myself. And that's what happened. I suppressed it until I could get out of the house. Um, but there, I was forewarned of uh, masculinities that would not uh, respect what it was that I said, um, but I knew that I still had the support of um, some of the women in my family also. So mm -hmm. there was that duality to voicing that. Interesting. Well, if you were able to have your voice sent back in time uh, what's something that you would like to say to your younger self? Um, I would say to continue going against the grain. Um, I would say cherish the relationships that you make because they will prove to be fruitful for you and the world. Uh, I would say don't allow anyone to tell you how your life should look and continue to live a happy life, but also make sure that you do that responsibly for yourself and for the ones that you love. All right. 
Okay, cool. Now, um, I'd like to kind of talk about this new development in your life, which is not only did you graduate, but you got um, accepted for a new position out in Durham. Um, so congratulations on that. But um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you will be doing? Yeah, um, the it's the LGBTQ Center of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, which is primarily focused in Durham, but also offers services to folks in the Triangle region of Durham, Raleigh, and Chapel Hill. Um, I am hired as the program's director for uh, the Gender Resources and Advocacy Support Program, um, also known as GRASP. And essentially, I'll be overseeing some of the already existing um, programs that are at the center, such as the Name Change Navigator, um, and trans support groups. Um, I'm so sorry. Did not know we were cutting grass today. Um, but I'll basically be trying to implement a new program in addition to overseeing some of the programs that have already been there at the center for a few years and adding directly to the exec director. My first year of work is primarily going to be research, um, establishing a social capital with those in Durham, Chapel Hill, and Raleigh. Um, and really gaining a sense of the community and the target areas of need. Gotcha. So that's a pretty big role, and especially one right out of college. I mean, of course, I feel as though you're definitely qualified and have a lot of value to bring. But um, I'm curious about like that interview process for you, because I know um, as well, I guess in that environment, it probably doesn't have as much of a like large, like intimidation factor. But I know with me, I'm um, going into interviews for a while. I felt a little insecure just about having locks or kind of being oh. black in like a white office environment. Um, yeah. What was it like for you interviewing as not only a black person, but a black trans woman? Um, well, that wasn't the first job that I applied for, but it was the first job that expressed that they wanted me to work for that center. Um, so I applied for about five positions, I think, to be honest. Um, one was a fellowship in New York. Uh, one was an organizing position um, with an organization called the Charleston Area Justice Ministry in Charleston, um, which is the sister affiliate organization of 22 other organizations across the nation. Um, <clears throat> and I was even asked to become the executive director of the affiliate organization in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, that didn't work out. Um, the fellowship in New York did not work out because they put an all state freeze on hiring for the state of New York. Um, Teach for America did not work out. Um, this position to me came to me when I spoke on a conference at a the Point Source Youth Symposium to End Homelessness last August at Emory University. I spoke on a panel about intergenerational social action, um, especially with the focus on housing and security and housing homeless youth. And one of my co-panelists was the former executive director for the center, Helena Craig. And after speaking and talking about what we thought was important, um, she walked up and said, we need you to work for us. Um, they actually wanted me to work for them starting January of this year, but I told them I couldn't do that because I needed to finish my last semester of school before doing anything. 
And um, then things hit with the pandemic and funding got cut. So then the funding needed to be reestablished for the position itself. And um, I went through the process after being notified that the funding had come in. Um, and I started reapplying for the position, I believe in February or March. Um, so between then and now is when I found out my acceptance and I'm now planning my move to Durham. So um, many positions I applied for, not many that came to me. Um, and the first one that actually came to me expressing, um, I guess I should say that was the first time that networking actually was not. It was one of the few times that networking um, had unknowingly brought about a job opportunity for me. Um, so I'm very blessed, again, that the way that I spoke about the things that I am passionate about alongside these women um, was enough for them to see me as a valuable asset to their center. Nice. Okay, cool. So it all ended up working out in the end. That's true. Nice. Cool. So when you were kind of selecting a different place you're going to interview, did you consciously, because it sounds as though with each of these positions, there were kind of places and environments that you would definitely feel comfortable and kind of fit with your own uh, morals and whatnot. Um, was that a kind of conscious effort on your part? To apply to the places that I applied to? Yeah, or um, kind of finding places that fit with your own um what was passionate to you, I guess, or important to you? Yeah, well, I applied to things and places that I've been in before. Um, I, I do love New York. There are many resources from the state of New York for queer and trans and gender non-conforming individuals in the community, um, just written into law. New York is one of those states that's very forward about providing those protections for that constituency. Um, I've also, I applied to a position in DC also. I think I've been to DC more than I have been to New York for many political actions, conferences, um, professional developments, lobbying efforts on Congressional Hill with my representatives. Um, and so those two places alone, yeah, I had experience with doing impactful work and meeting influential folks in those cities. So that was a conscious effort to choose those two geographic areas. Um, but Durham, I hadn't had that much experience with um, besides the Durham Pride that I attended last year, which the center invited me to, to kind of get a taste of what Durham had to offer and, and what the city was. Um, so I felt very warm after that first meeting in Durham um, but I didn't have as much experience with Durham as I did many of the other destinations um, also. So, but it was still a conscious effort. Cool. Okay. Um, so one question that I always ask people is, um, is about professionalism because part of our mission is to redefine professionalism and the standards that come with it. So um, what would you say, like, what does professionalism mean to you? 
Um, professionalism means um, being firm on your opinion, knowing that there are going to be differing opinions from yours, but making sure that you have a rationale and justification ready to share with folks as to why you have a differing opinion. I am so sorry the dog is barking, um, <laughs> but they are acting like attack happening in the house. So, oh yeah, they're ready um, to go. <laughs> no one should yeah, us It's an alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, professionalism <clears throat> is um, just becoming the master of whatever you believe your craft to be, right? Don't they say don't become the master of none? Become the master of something in your life. Complete something um, and be really good at that. I think that that in itself is professionalism to just master mm. a craft. Gotcha. What, what do you think your craft is? Um, my craft um, is really driven around, it had a solid base in um, uh, speaking and um, community redevelopment um, any engagements, uh, social activism, and um, underserved advocacy. I think those are just like broad terms of a lot of stuff that I do already. Um, so I, I just feel like my calling deals with having difficult conversations with folks um, that have more access um, mm -hmm. to relay a perspective and to get them to understand that perspective and understand why um, those perspectives need to be validated. Mm. So kind of speak a little further on that. What do you think is something that you wish the black community as a whole understood about um, black trans rights and yeah, what, what do you wish that the black community felt about um, or understood about black trans people? Um, that we don't owe an explanation to anyone when it comes to our gender and that our expression, um, it's the most dehumanizing thing to um, reduce our expression and our experience to our genitalia um, because you dehumanize us and maximize um, whatever reproductive organs we have as opposed to really getting to understand um, the circumstances around someone's life and why they choose to present themselves a certain way. Um, I'd like them to also understand that you can't be for the liberation of Black people unless all Black people are included within that effort um, and an understanding that the movements for which we are marching right now were actually started by um, queer Black people. Um, so trying to remember that we have an entire movement that was stemmed out of something again that was queer at its root, queer and Black, um, and that Blackness does include queerness. Um, and the sooner we can accept that and the sooner we can deconstruct the ways in which we police and chastise ourselves which are internalized um, behaviors as a result to um, being colonized, the sooner we can deconstruct that whiteness within ourselves, 
the sooner we can actually make a viable plan for the liberation of all Black lives. Love that. It goes back to earlier what you were speaking on, unlearning the whiteness, I think you said. Mm. Exactly. All right, cool. And that's actually a very good point because I believe um, I believe his name is Bayard Rustin. Mm-hmm. I hope I didn't put. Oh, did, okay, yeah. Who um, is a gay man who actually organized the March on Washington, and I mean, he did mm-hmm. a lot of things in his career. But I just think that's so profound because we always we always look at the leader and kind of paint Martin Luther King as the creator of all of that. But really, to get to that point, took a lot of different people in there. You're right. And there was a lot of people from the hmm. I don't remember all who was involved, but I just know that he and a lot of other people from the LGBTQ community were involved with uh-huh. um liberating black people. Mm-hmm. They right. always have always have been and always will because like Jasana said earlier, um in her episode, there's eight thousand ways to be black and it's it's all good, it's all beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Cool. Um, And lastly, so part of this show is to kind of dive into natural hair. So I'm curious to hear about your own natural um, hair journey and experience or anything you wanted to speak on. Um, Sure. Um, I'm wearing my natural hair right now um, and all of its thickness. And I've been growing it since... um, October or November 2017. So it's been out two and a half years now. Um, and a classmate of mine named Courtney Hicks actually inspired me with the way that she wore her hair. Um, the campus and an organization that she created on campus called Collegiate Curls, um, which uh, celebrate ethnic hair uh, and the diversity in here specifically. And she also came up with some of her own products um, she's since graduated from the college, but um, she has continued making like products um, and doing hair along with um, her day job and everything else that she's doing. Um, and so uh, I just, you know, I had a head full of hair and I was encouraged by many people to just like show it off, um, whether I have it pressed or whether I have it out natural right now. It's a little too hot and humid for it to be pressed. Um, the summer is more protective styles, more natural. Um, right. So um, I used three products of hers and I want to like correctly identify them. Um, she lock and curl refreshing rose water. Um, she has a citrus growth oil and she has a shea butter frosting. Uh, with shea butter frosting, which she used after shampooing and conditioning my hair. Um, and I had a braid out a few days ago, but now this is just like the remnants of like some curly used to be braidy hair. Um, just because it is what it is. Um, I might be getting braids soon. Who knows? Um, like I said, it is hot. It's time for projective styles. But um, yeah, my hair has been growing way faster than I thought it would. And so I am taking this journey to also mirror how far I've come in my personal transition. Yeah, I was about to say, you said you started 2017. So that was around the same time you started your transition um, as well. So it's like... Yeah, when you saw me, when we met, 
which I think was like summer 17 or late yeah. summer. Um, I was just growing my hair, which is why I kept it wrapped up in the scarf all the time. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So your hair really is kind of like a symbol of where you are. Yes. Wow. So you really went all out living your true authentic self. Yeah. I mean, really why cool. not? That's right. All right, cool. Well, um, I mean, to be honest, there's like plenty more questions I could answer, but uh, I mean, ask you, but um, I feel like we've, get, we've given the world a, a lot to think about and take notes on. I know I'll have to go back and uh, rewind a few things to really dive deeper into, but um, is there anything, any other thing you'd like to share before we leave? Um, nothing to share, but please um, stay connected with me on social media platforms, and I'm sure you'll have that for them because um, I sent them to you. And to see what's like what I'm doing next, the things that I'm part of, things I'm passionate of, and continue to be great. Everyone out there who took the time to listen and watch. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining. This is awesome, man. Um, really glad we were able to reconnect too, because that has been a minute, and I'm really excited to see where you go from here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Walter, for having me. Thank you all for listening to Boss Locks, where we redefine professionalism and prove that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. You can learn more about Vanity and follow her journey by visiting bosslocks.org and just scroll down to see you see a post with her picture on it. Um, there you can find links to her social pages, learn more about what she's up to. And, you know, while you're on our website, why not send us a quick message? Uh, you could go to the contact page and use the form to get the inside scoop on the Facebook group, learn more about what we're doing, or just simply say, hey, I'm, and I'm serious. I mean, the world is too divided for us not to stay connected. So you can do all that and more by visiting www.bosslocks.org. That is B-O-S-S-L-O-C-K-S dot org. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.